every story has a climax, at least a decent one. So it is when the tension and the conflict of the story you know, it builds to the highest point, and then it resolves from that point on. It is typically you know, what we enjoy the most about every story. But often, equally intriguing is the aftermath of the climax. So the audience wants to know, you know what comes out of it, you know, what happens to the characters now. And in a way, this is, is what Isaiah 54 is. It is the aftermath in the, in the climax of the book of Isaiah, which is Isaiah 53. Some of you may already be very familiar with Isaiah 53, um, but for those who are not, which is fun. You know, so throughout the book of Isaiah, the prophet has been pronouncing both the judgments on the present Israel as well as the restoration of the future Israel. It's like a cycle going between judgment and restoration. So the, as the cycle builds up, the tension reaches to Isaiah 53. So how will God bring restoration to a desolate city or nation like Israel? And the answer, which is the climax, was in Isaiah 53. That is through the work and the person of Jesus Christ. He is the servant who suffered, was humiliated, who took on the wrath of God so that a righteous judgment of God upon the nations is, accept, is, is executed on the servant. And the peace and blessing is then restored to Israel. So with, the all, with all eyes fixated fixing, fixing on the servant in Isaiah 53, the author begins to slowly fade out the scene and the camera pans to the aftermath of climax in Isaiah 54. So the sermon today will be on Isaiah 54, verse 1 to 10. And from the, in the first five verses, Isaiah gives us five, three distinct commandments to Israel. First, they are to rejoice. Second, to grow. Third, to be confident. Then from, from verse 5 to 10, Isaiah shows them the three commandments are fueled by the steadfast love of God. And since the love of God in, verse, in the second half of the passage is the reason, it's the foundation for the call to actions in the first half, so for our sermon today, what I will do is I will walk, uh, through, I will walk through with us um, the verse 1 to 5 first without direct, a direct application of the text. Because I want to wait, uh, wait to apply the text until we come to the reason and the motivation of the application which is the steadfast love of God. Because it is the love of God that gives us a reason to rejoice. It is the love of God that motivates us to grow. And it is the love of God that reassures us to be confident. So, let's get into the text. Verse 1, Isaiah writes, Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. So who are the barren ones here that are being called to sing? So they are those that were not able to produce offsprings. So in many cultures, not being able to have children 
is a shameful thing. And that is the, certainly the case in the ancient Israel, where women often rely on their husbands. You know, they need their children for livelihood. So women who cannot bear children were often looked down upon. They may even be considered as cursed by God. So it is the barren one here. You know, those who have not been in labor are called to break forth into singing and cry aloud. They are called the desolate ones because they have not only no children, but they have also lost their husband. They are completely hopeless and helpless. But yet, they will have more children than one who is married. And this is why they will rejoice and sing, because there is a supernatural miracle at work here that God will provide them with children even more than what would be normally expected of a woman with a husband. And this is a callback to Isaiah's prophecy a few chapters prior, when Isaiah writes in, Isaiah, in chapter 12, 49, verse 20 to 22, The children of your bereavement will yet say in your years, The place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. But from where have these come? These referring to the children. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hands to the nations and raise my signals to the people. And they shall bring your sons into their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulder. So the women who were grieving over the loss of their children, and without their husband, will have more children, and they will have more causes to rejoice, because God will be the one to bring them children, and to grant them the supernatural birth. They can rejoice and they can sing because the Lord has blessed them abundantly beyond anyone's expectation. And it's interesting because in the history of Israel, there have been many barren women whom the Lord uses as the evidence of His power and grace. In fact, all three wives of the patriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, have all experienced infertilities in their lives. And yet, through them, through these barren women, God established a great nation of Israel with a number of descendants that surpasses the stars in the sky. And the same God who delivered children to them will now also provide for Israel supernaturally by increasing their number as a result of the work of the servant, servant in Isaiah 53. And when the supernatural work of God is demonstrated among them, they can rejoice and break out in singing and love Christ. And as they experience this supernatural birth and increase by the number of God, the second commandment to them is grow. In verse 2, Isaiah commands them to enlarge the place of their tents stretch out the curtains of their habitations. With the supernatural increasing their numbers, Israelites will need a bigger place or a bigger tent. Just like married couples today, 
you know, will often start their life together with a condo. But when the children come, they will need to move into a bigger place, like a townhouse or a house. I know that's easier said than done in <laughs> So likewise, for the Israelites, God is about to do miraculous work among them, and they need to get ready. Do not hold back, God said. Lengthen your cords, strengthen your stays, so their house or their tents can, get, can grow bigger and they can stand stronger. And all these commandments to grow are based on the confidence that the Lord will act upon, among them. Just like the former days of the Israelites, when they were slaves in Egypt, when, and they were oppressed by the Pharaohs. In Exodus chapter 1 verse 12 it says, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in the dread of the people of Israel. And this is what our God can do. He can work miracles, and He can grow His peoples, despite of oppositions. And in verse 3, the new nation of Israel will spread abroad to the right and to the left. They will conquer the cities, and they will possess land. And this is also fulfilling what God said to Moses in Exodus 34, verse 24. For I, the Lord, will cast out nations before you, and enlarge your border. No one shall cover your land. And when you go up to appeal, appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. So once again, when the servant completed his mission on the cross, the new Israel will possess nations and people groups. They will become the inheritance, all of them will become the inheritance of Yahweh our God. So grow your rooms, strengthen your foundations, because Yahweh will fill it up as He promised. And the third commandment is to take courage, is to be confident, because they will no longer be ashamed in verse 4. They will not be confounded, meaning they will not be confused and perplexed no more, and they will not be disgraced. So that begs the question, why would Israel be ashamed to confound it and be disgraced? That's because their former self has sought after idols and worshipped other gods. You know, they covet what other nations have and they abandoned what the Lord has promised them. Their hands committed evil and blood drips from their hands. So this passage refers to Isaiah chapter 3 verse 18 to 26. So I'm not going to read the whole thing, it's quite long, but, if you, but please read it. So in this passage, God condemns the Israelites for their idol worshipping. It says God will take away that everything that Israel was prouding. So instead of things and materials and God that they used to glorify themselves, God will bring down shame, disgrace, and desolation. But all this will pass. In Isaiah 4 verse 1, following the destruction of Israel, God also told them that there will be a day that a branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. 
So as the servant came and fulfilled his calling in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 4 is now being fulfilled. And Israel, like Israel, will forget the shame of her youth. They will no longer be widows, nor will they receive the reproach as widows. All the shame, the confusion, and disgrace will now be forgotten, and they will be no longer in effect. Because all the past slates and their memories of sin will be wiped clean. And they have the assurance to, to no longer be in fear because according to verse 5, that her husband is taking her back. Her maker is her husband. The one who made them, the one who formed Israel, who chose them through Abraham is once again reconciled to Yahweh as a wife to a husband. It is the knowledge of marriage here reveals a deliberate, a committed, and everlasting relationship. He took, God took those who abandoned him back as his wife. And he is not only the maker of Israel, he is also Yahweh. He is the Lord of hosts, of heavenly armies. He is the power of all the heavens, and he can overcome any powers on this earth. The Lord of hosts his name because that's who he revealed himself to be and that's who he is for eternity and he is the holy one of israel he is the redeemer of israel says verse 5. he restored the familial relationship between israel and god and at the verse of five in the verse five it says he is the god of the whole earth god of the whole earth is a culmination of the all his previous titles, you know, the maker of Israel, the heavenly host, the holy one who redeemed them. His power and sovereignty is over the whole earth. And that's what gives Israel the assurance of security and comfort of peace. Because she was redeemed to God's sight by the work of the servant. The servant satisfied the divine requirements of a holy God, and he lived as a man so he could be their representative. And the servant's name is Jesus. In First John, verse uh, chapter two, verse two, he writes this: that he is the propitiation for our sin, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. The redemption of God's people requires a price. It is a costly price because we have all sinned against the holy and perfect God and that His perfect righteousness and justice demand a price to pay for our sin. That is death. Just like the Israelites will face desolation because of their idolatry and evil work, we will all face a judgment of eternal death for the sins that we have all committed in our life. And in order to restore Israelites back to the intimate relationship with God, in order to redeem us from our own path of destruction to God as His children, God sent His only Son to us, that He became the propitiation for our sin and for the sins of the whole world. 
Uh, the word propitiation means Jesus satisfied the wrath of God by becoming the sacrificial lamb who died in our place. He was a servant that was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. As Isaiah 53 verse 10 writes, Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. It was God's will to crush him. For what? Why would God crush the humble servant who was only one that's perfect, be obedient in all his ways? And that's because the, that's the only way that we can be saved. That's the only way that Israel can be redeemed. Because the steadfast, because that's the only way, both the steadfast love of God and His righteous justice can be expressed gloriously. And this is why a barren woman can rejoice, and a broken nation can grow, and the ashamed, the confused, and the disgraced people can have comfort and assurance of an everlasting relationship with God. So these three commandments of rejoicing, growing, and taking uh, be confident are only possible because of the steadfast love of God shown Jesus Christ. And the love of God is the key character here that serves as a foundation for all three uh, calls, to, calls to actions. So and that's why I didn't want to apply them on you too quickly. Because unless we fully grasp the love of God, all the rejoicing and growing and being confident will merely be superficial and self-deceiving. So now let us read Isaiah chapter 54 verse 6 to 10 to see how God demonstrated his steadfast love to us. And then, as we go through 6 to 10, We'll go back to the three commandments and apply them in our context. Okay? Alright, so in verse 6, it says, The redemption of Israel was initiated by God. So it was God who sought after Israel and called her back to him. So, like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, you know, like a wife of youth, she was cast off. So the imagery here is a broken marriage has lost his former love of his youth. There's only sadness and grief remaining in this relationship. But no more, because God has called her back to the marriage that Israel abandoned and left for. Now God is restoring the love that was betrayed. Jesus was a steadfast love of God, reincarnated in human form, who walked and lived among us. And Jesus saw after the destitute. He healed the blind and the lame. He befriended the tax collectors and the prostitutes. He was exiled and punished on our behalf so that we may be reconciled to the presence of God and enjoy his blessing forevermore. Friends, you are so loved by God and he has called you back to him. And from verse 7 to 10, Isaiah gives three assurances on how God demonstrating his love. One, his compassion reconciles desertion. Two, his everlasting love 
is greater than anger. Three, his covenantal oath overcomes judgment. And all of which reveals the heart of God for love, for compassion, and to save sinners. Let's take a look at the first one. God's compassion reconciles desertion. And in verse 7, we read that desertion of Israel was only for a brief moment, in contrast to the reconciliation that God would bring about through his servant. The sin that caused desertion are no longer mentioned here because they're forgiven. The servant took the punishment of their sin. God who was offended will no longer count the offense against him. Against so God with great compassion, with love overflowing from him, will gather his people back to him. And fulfilling will be read in verse 1. God will not only restore them, that he will increase their numbers. The barren ones, the widowers, those with no providence and no honor, will now sing and rejoice because God will give them supernatural birth more than what they could normally expect even of a married woman with a husband. And all the people of earth, of God, have experienced such supernatural birth. So no, I'm not saying that every believer will have biological children. There are believers that God has called to be single, and there are married couples who will experience infertility. But the supernatural birth that scripture is talking about here is you, Christians, your conversion and spiritual rebirth is the supernatural miracle of God. In John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus points Nicodemus to see the necessity of having to be born again in order to enter into the kingdom of God. You know, we were born physically, but to enter into the kingdom of God, we need spiritual rebirth. And just like none of us decided to be born from our mother's womb, our spiritual rebirth is also initiated and given by God. So when Isaiah calls the barren woman to sing because God will give them children, he's pointing to the reality that God will increase the number of his people in the kingdom by generating spiritual rebirth from generation to generation. The rejoicing, the singing, the crying aloud in Isaiah 54 is fulfilled in your salvation. Every testimony that we give for our membership application <coughs> and every baptism is a worthy cause of celebration because God has done the unimaginable. That as sinners like us who were, who were bent on living our life by our own desire according to our own moral standards are now given a new heart with a new spirit, cleansed and purchased by the blood of Christ, and that we become new spiritual family, into God as our head, led by His Son and bound by His Holy Spirit, knitted together in unity and in love. And that increase does not end in you. Through the proclamation of the gospel and the witness of life transformation, God will continue to perform miracles and make more new lives in Jesus Christ. So sing and rejoice, friends, for all the new birth that God will bring to us.
And that brings us to the second commandment that we, we encountered in verse 2 and 3. Christians, I want to exhort you to grow and make yourselves ready for the new birth that God is bringing among us. Let us go back to verse 2 again and consider how you can enlarge your tent, stretch out your curtains, lengthen your cord, and strengthen your stake in light of the love of God. You know, again, I'm not asking you to buy a bigger house, but I'm asking you to consider in what ways you are enlarging the family of God and advancing His kingdom. In Acts chapter 2, verse 46 to 47, Luke uh, describes what God was doing in the early church. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to them, added to the number day by day, those who were being saved. So let's be very clear. Conversion is from the Lord. New birth is regenerated by God alone. But we ought to make ourselves ready for that growth. So is that on your radar, Christians? Are you committed to grow in the knowledge and the love of Christ? If you were to build a big house or a skyscraper, you need solid foundations and not to cheap out on material. Growing the kingdom of God will first require your own spiritual growth. Uh, in GFC, we have a lot of young adults, or people who identify as young adults. <laughs> the question I often hear from them is, how can I mature and grow in my faith? You know, who are the older men and older women I can go to for growth? So my exhortation to you today is this, that turn your desire to grow into tangible actions. Commit yourself to Sunday gatherings and prayer meetings. Join discipleship classes and small groups. But most importantly, devote yourself daily to God's word and in prayer. There is no shortcut in spiritual growth. You have to practice spiritual discipline daily. And don't think your age could limit how God could use you. You know, I think that's a misconception we have. Jim Elliott was 25. He was 25 when he went on the mission field. And he was 29 when he died. And I know not everyone's going to be Jim Elliott. You know, but I still remember in my own Christian journey, when I was a youth, uh, in a youth group, I was benefited and loved so much by the youth group leaders, and I really looked up to them and I want to be like them one day. But now looking back, they were like 22, 23. <laughs> you know, very young, even according to GFC standards. <laughs> but they played an instrumental role in my Christian formation. And I want to take this opportunity to thank the youth group leaders here in our church. Your weekly presence and examples to our teens will pay dividends one day. That they will grow up not forgetting what you have done for them. 
They may even look up to you as their older men and older women. And you may be their role model and examples to become. So young adults of GFC, commit yourself in growing in your love and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and you are not too young to be used by our God. And for those of you who no longer identify as young adults, you know, you may be in a pivotal time of your life. Your career is blossoming, your, life, your family is growing, and you have more and more responsibilities as you become an adult. And uh, I want to just encourage you to guard your responsibilities and not to let church to take the back seat of your life. You know, especially those with young families, like this is not guilt tripping you, but I really miss seeing you guys in our prayer meetings. You know, you may think your kids are too noisy, you know, they may, you may think your family needs rest. And I know I don't have children, so I'm not the one to give you parenting advice. But I could speak of a beautiful sight last week in our prayer meetings. You know, just watching one family of six joining us with their kids laughing and running around while we're praying and with like a three-month infant in their stroller. And I know every, children, every child is different. And again, I'm far from qualified from giving parenting advice. But I, I believe this should be part of your family conversation. That how much you should devote in prayer and gathering with other believers. And how much you can give to build into the kingdom of God and build into other people. And this is how church grows. You know, when we put aside our inconveniences to come together, to love and to pray and to study God's word. And for the older populations here in GFC, you have walked faithfully for years, and you have so much to offer for our young church. And you may feel like you don't fit here in GFC, because for whatever reasons, young adults just keep coming here. <laughs> and they may be intimidating, you know, with their lingos and languages. I don't even know half of them these days. So acknowledge, I acknowledge that there may be a generational gap. But just like any relationships, it needs time to foster and to build connections. So I want to explore you to grow, to keep growing, to embrace the awkwardness, to serve with young folks, to, a church, to attend church events outside of Sundays, to open your home and taking the, the young adults under your wings. Your white hairs are treasures for our church. And we need more seasoned believers to tell us what foolishness that we're committing at times and what conflicts are merely petty arguments. And as a church, our aim is never for numerical growth, but our desire is to see sinners being saved and disciples being mature here. So it is our aim to build up in every one of you that you would do the work of the ministry. That we want to multiply believers in the city, but we first need to multiply the leaders. So as sad as I am to see John leave, I rejoice in the work that God is doing in his life. 
But more importantly, I rejoice in what God could do through him in the city for his kingdom. And we should all keep praying that God will keep raising up leaders. And you should pray that God will raise you up as leaders. Whether it's elders, or deacons, or missionaries, or small group leaders, or ministry leaders, you can be an influencer in God's kingdom. You can draw others to follow the commandment of Jesus Christ. So do not limit yourself. Do not hold back. Aim high. Pray that God will use you. God will give you the knowledge. God will build into your character. And God will give you the ability to bring many people to Christ and to mature other and disciple other believers. Do you believe God can use you? And one last, I want to speak to the visitors of GFC, especially those of you who have attended our church for a while. You are not off the hook. <laughs> I want to challenge you to also think about how you can grow and advance the kingdom of God. Actually, I want to tell you how not to do that. You would not build into the kingdom of God by being an audience at church and not a participant. You would not do that by just coming to Sunday and not committing to discipleship and fellowship. You would do that by not knowing others and being known by other believers. I say this not because membership integration is my job responsibility here, but because over the years, I've seen many, many Christians living in isolation. They may profess good doctrines, but the best scenario for them is that they're living, they're wasting their gifts and knowledge by not sharing with others. The worst scenario is that they are living in sin, but nobody knows about it. So I say this with the kingdom of God and with your spiritual well-being in mind, that if you come to GFC week in and week out for half a year or over a year, it must mean that you appreciate our Sunday worship and you agree with our teaching, then become a member of our church. Commit to our teachings and our community. Serve and give and build into the kingdom of God with what God given you. Now let's continue our text and see how God's steadfast love is also demonstrated in contrasting his everlasting love to the temporality of his anger in verse 7. So yes, there is God. God, God is angry over sin. And the consequence of sin is separation from God. And that was the judgment that Israelites received when their nations were destroyed and sent to exile. And that was a state that we were in before we believed in Jesus. But this anger is brief in contrast to the everlasting love of God. The wrath of God was poured on his own son Jesus and it was finished upon the cross and the love for Jesus is now found on you and that will be everlasting. 
But did Jesus die for everyone? Yes and no. The very famous first John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So yes, salvation offered through Jesus is to the whole world, to everyone without distinction. And that means whether you're Jews or non-Jews, you're male or female, young or old, rich or poor, there's no earthly categories that precludes you from the love of God and the salvation of Jesus Christ. Salvation is made for any, everyone without distinction, in that no matter how much you sin, how little Bible knowledge you have, and how messed up your life is right now, you may be saved if you turn away from your sin and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. But salvation of Jesus Christ is not for everyone without exemption. And if you live your own ways, you persist in, in continuing to sin, and you resist to confess and repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ, then the wrath of God remains upon you. Just like thunder clouds in a summer day, when the lightning could strike any second and the thunders would roll, you may die and face the judgment of God in hell for eternity. So I want to urge, so I want to urge you for those who have not believed in the name of Jesus Christ yet, come to Jesus today while you live. God is calling you to him and he's gathering nations and peoples back to you. But repent and believe in Jesus. In verse 9, Isaiah recalls the days of Noah, when God judges sins of the earth by flood. The reference to the flood reminds the reader again the devastation and the universality of God's judgment. But the focus here is a settlement of peace established among the earth, on the earth because God's covenant with Noah. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 13, God said the rainbow in the sky is a sign of peace. Do you know why he chose rainbow? Because a rainbow symbolizes a bowl that is hung upside down. It is no longer in use, it is retirement. Because the war is over and peace prevails. And that peace was established not because God became okay or lenient with your sin, but because the justice of God was fulfilled on Jesus Christ. And now verse 10 continues, For the mountains may depart and the hills be moved, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And the covenant of peace shall not be removed, says Yahweh, who has compassion on you. Such is the new covenant that God established through Jesus Christ. It is permanent, more permanent than Mount Everest or Atlantic Ocean, even more than death and taxes. The steadfast love of God will not depart from us, and the covenant of peace shall not be removed. And the authority is from Yahweh, because thus says the Lord. Just as our church has gone through many challenges this past year, but I believe for many of us, it has been a sanctifying experience. Because all the challenges that we face and all the ever 
changing nature of the city or the church, even in the church, I think it points us to see who is ultimately immovable and never changing. And that is God's covenant of love for us, which is bound to his nation. I, for one, have received much comfort and peace from praying and spending time with other believers these past few months. So ultimately, our courage and our hope is found in the one who never fails. He who called us back even when we were unfaithful. He who restored us to his steadfast love even when our love is fickle. He is our maker who is committed to us. The Yahweh of hosts is his name. He is holy and he is our redeemer and he has a power over all the earth. So in him that we can take courage no matter what trials or storms that we face in this life. So friends, this steadfast love of God has come through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So let us rejoice and sing because he has and he is continually delivering supernatural new birth among us. And let us strive to grow both in our own walks as well as in the advancement of the kingdom because God will increase our numbers. And let us take hearts and be courageous and be confident in the immovable and never changing 